Hello and welcome to the Black Mentors Podcast, where we ask, listen, learn, and invest in the knowledge and truth of black males from all socioeconomic backgrounds. We also advocate for positive images and narratives of black males in all forms of media. I'm your host today, Rodney Harmon. Correction, I'm your host, Rodney Harmon. And we are joined today by our guest, Stuart Venable. Stuart currently is on Instagram with a uh, feature that he calls convict quotes. And he makes the quotes relevant to today of what convicts said in the prison system. And it relates to what's going on right now in our uh, cities and states. So we welcome uh, Coach V today. And uh, we appreciate you coming here and and explaining or, or, you know, for our listeners to get to know you and stuff like that. So... Yeah, well, it's my pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, we definitely appreciate you coming on. I know there's a lot of stuff we like to get to, and uh, basically, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hmm. Yeah, I try to keep this uh, succinct. So, born and raised in the South, in Virginia, uh, graduated high school and went right into the military a week after high school graduation. I was stationed at uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, Fort Wainwright, and then Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. I got out of the military in 1988, so I did seven years from 81 to 88. Um, Started working for the Department of Justice. I started in California, um, transferred there to a position as a lieutenant, went to Phoenix, Arizona, 1995. I transferred from Phoenix to Leavenworth, Kansas, at the United States Penitentiary, and I did 18 years there at USP Leavenworth and retired in 2012. Um, relocated again, my family to Lincoln, Nebraska. My, my wife is uh, my wife is the baby of 12 kids, and all of her family is still in Nebraska, except one sister that lives in Leavenworth as well. So, with her whole family living in Nebraska, she wanted to come so she could be back home. So she said uh, her exact words, I think, was. I uh, I left my family for you, whatever, 20 years ago, so now it's your turn. But I was like, nobody retires and moves to Lincoln. Everybody retires and moves to Florida or California. Yeah. At any good movie, that's a retirement place. But being a baby of 12, I lost that battle against her and her family. I ended up in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's a good place. It's a good place to live. It's a good place for us to raise our daughter. And now I'm teaching high school. I'm in my six years of high school PE teacher. Okay. All right. Now you say as far as uh, retiring, uh, you retired from the Bureau of Prisons, but you didn't actually retire, retire. So like you said, you went into the teaching aspect of it? Right. Right. I retired from the Bureau of Prisons, and I think I was home about three weeks. And and my wife, Shelly, had this honeydew listen. She always had me doing stuff. And I was retired, so I really didn't want to do stuff. Um, and she said, if you think you're going to sit on your butt while I keep working, you got another thought coming. So I was like, if you keep giving me this list of things to do, we end up divorced. So I'm going back to school. So that's what I did. I went back to school and, uh, finished my degree in physical education. Cause I want to be a strength coach. I've been training people for over 35 years now. Um, so I, I wanted to finish my degree and just do high school strength and conditioning so I wouldn't have to relocate just like you would if you were in uh, collegiate strength and conditioning. But uh, they didn't have any high school strength coaches here. 
I went to the district office in Lincoln, and they said your best bet is to is to get your degree in PE and then get your teacher certificate, go to one of these high schools, and hope whoever's in charge is smart enough to put you in the weight room. So it took me a year and a half. I think I had I, did, I didn't finish my degree, but I had three or three and a half years of college credits. So I had to finish up that half a year, but to get my teacher certificate took another year. So I think a year and a half, I went to Nebraska Western University to finish that up and ended up teaching PE just like uh, the lady told me. Okay. All right. Now you, you break down the fact that you uh, was into uh, physical fitness as far as, uh, you know, weight training and stuff. Can you also let our uh, listeners know, I know for a fact, Personally, I know you, and I know you was into martial arts and and uh, weightlifting. Can you tell us some, some of your certificates or some of your degrees that you have? Man, like I said, um, uh, I had an associate's degree. Um, I think my associate's degree was in exercise science from KCK, Kansas City Community College, and then I did uh, my bachelor's is in physical education and I started working on my master's but I was just kind of messing around and, and I haven't really went into that full ball but I want my master's to be in uh, human behavior okay so I, I have uh, I have at last count I had like 32 or 33 certifications and, and not on purpose like I'm not that guy going around collecting certs so I have alphabet soup behind my name but all these years I'm going through training and you go to conferences and seminars and you take courses. Well, a lot of those courses, when you get done, they give you a certification. You get a certification in, in sprinting. You get a certification in kettlebell. You get a certification in the Olympic lifts. You get certification in the uh, power lifts or the strong lifts. So I ended up getting a lot of my certifications that way, not purposely seeking certifications. Okay. Now, when we talk about powerlifting and stuff, uh, a lot of people don't is miseducated on the reason why people power lift. They think that they just want to get big and bulky and, and just pack on a lot of muscle. Uh, explain to our listeners why powerlifting is so important in every sport. Yeah, so uh, a couple things. Let me uh, let me give us some context. So, if a person's goal is to get big and bulky. Um, you would probably focus more on bodybuilding than anything else because that puts the mass on, and we call that hypertrophy training, and that's done with most people by doing a lot of high-rep exercises. Um, that was my initial phase when I first started lifting personally when I was a kid um, back in the 70s. We started the bodybuilding phase, and that's how you want to get big. I graduated from the, the point of view of, hey, I want to get big, to, I want to I want to be stronger. It was a couple of guys in the gym on post, and they saw me lifting, and they were like, "You have natural strength. If we could kind of hone that or tweak that, you could be a, a pretty decent powerlifter." So um, these two guys who were lifting on the all army team, they got me started down the powerlifting route. I just didn't have a physique for a bodybuilder. Um, my genetics aren't so that I could put weight on easily, and I'm. I have long legs, so I'm, I'm like, I always say I'm two-thirds legs and one-third body. I have really long legs and a shorter torso, okay. so 
my physique is not balanced like that to be bodybuilding. So I went the powerlifting route and the long legs helped me with the deadlift, not so much with the squat. And I ended up doing pretty good in powerlifting. So with the powerlifting, you're doing heavy reps, um, heavy weight, and you're doing only a few reps, usually between one and at the most five reps, which is quite different from bodybuilding where you're doing anywhere from eight to 12 or 15 reps. So I competed as a powerlifter for 16 years, and it's important because there's not a sport you can play that you don't need to be strong. I mean, there's not an athlete that's walking around that's not strong. You can look at any Division One. I'm talking high-level athlete, any Division One or professional athlete, they are all strong. And I said that to say this, that I, after 16 years competing as a powerlifter, I transitioned again over to Olympic weightlifting, which is the snatch and the cleaning jerk. That's different from powerlifting because you're not worried so much about being strong, although weightlifters are strong. Your focus is on power. Your focus is on moving weight fast. And again, the reps are pretty low. We do anywhere from uh, three to a max of five reps. And every now and again, you do heavy max reps. But the idea is to be explosive. And again, when it comes to athletes and training athletes, there's not an athlete operating at a high level that doesn't want to be this. That's not it. Explosive, not doesn't want to be. If you're at a high level, you're guaranteed to be two things that's strong and that's explosive. So I ran the whole gamut. Okay. But, uh, the athletic ability wasn't wasn't really on my side. All right. Now, are you involved? Were you involved in martial arts when you were in the military? Yeah, I started the martial arts as a kid, and then mm-hmm. when I went in the military, it really because we just had somebody around the way that knew a little bit, and he was trying to teach us kids. I guess trying to keep us out of trouble. Um, and then when in the military, and I started with Taekwondo first, and then when I got to, uh, uh, did a little boxing. And then when I got out, I went to, uh, we're in California. I did some more boxing, went to Arizona. I started doing some Muay Thai. Um, when I met you in, um, in Leavenworth, we started doing some jujitsu then. So we were trying to put it all together and make it make sense. That's when MMA was first coming out. So yeah. my Taekwondo background, uh, my Muay Thai background, it all contributed to putting us with the Jiu-Jitsu and the boxing background. And it was uh, it was fun. We trained a lot. We stayed in shape. We wanted to be prepared for the job. So I think it worked out that way. Okay. Um, now you talk about Taekwondo and you talk about the physical ability, which all correctional officers should do in the same as all law enforcement officers on the street. Uh, what would be your recommendation for a, a young person that wants to start out in the Bureau of Prisons as far as his physical fitness? Should he start out just, I mean, he's, he's normally in shape, but should he start off at, in the martial arts or should he start off lifting weights or, or what would you recommend because a lot of them come in there and they see the highlight and, and we're going to more about sort training and, and sort training is a special reaction team training that uh, me and both Venable and did basically all our life when we were in the military and in the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, but a young person coming in and they see the sort training going on and they tend to want to be part of that. What would you recommend that they start off doing first? Um, I would recommend they start off with what we call general physical preparation, a GPP. It's, it's the same thing I did when we were in we were in Leavenworth, Kansas, and I trained the military soldiers up on um, with the military, not necessarily just soldiers, 
Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine, Coast Guard, whoever. We train them general physical preparedness because you you never know when they're going to need their skill set. Different than when you have a football team or volleyball team and you're training for a particular period of time that they're going to actually be engaged in a sport, then you can tweak the programming and adjust it and make it more intense or less intense depending on the time. With military people, the same way with Bureau of Prisons, so all law enforcement as well, they need just general physical preparation. They need to be able to move well. They need to have an adequate um, level of strength, and they need to have an adequate level of uh, conditioning and still be explosive. So they're going to have some of everything sprinkled in, but not too much of anything. So they're not specializing in one particular thing, and then you're not beating them up. So when the balloon goes up, they're ready to respond. Okay. All right. And I bring up, uh, we're going to get to your convict quotes, but I bring up uh, Leavenworth a lot because uh, there's a lot of controversy on whether or not um, uh, right now with them all being locked down, which is, I think the last time they were locked down completely, Bureau of Prisons was in 1995. Uh, but right now with all the COVID going on and all the uh, riots, and I ain't going to say the protest. The protest did not bring these guys out. The riots is the one that brought these guys out. And there's a difference between riot and protest. So uh, with that all going on, in Leavenworth, what makes a per or not so much in Leavenworth, as a CO, what makes you come to work every day and what makes you go home every day? I think the thing that makes you... You know, we, we want to take care of our families like like anybody else. So we have to have an occupation. Um, and preferably more than an occupation, a profession. And at Leavenworth, like you and I were, most of us, I would say 90% of the staff were prior military because the Bureau of Prisons, Department of Justice, is a paramilitary organization. So they very much do a lot of things just like you would do in the military. For us, when we were in the military and our skill set, there's not that many civilian jobs that, that can relate to what they taught us. So it's, it's good stuff. It's good training. It's fun. You learn a lot in the military, but when you walk out and you're in the civilian world, it's like nobody's really looking for anybody to do raids or ambushes or recons or you yeah. know, blowing up stuff or shooting that stuff or whatever. So the likely place for us to end up is in some type of law enforcement position, which most of us end up there. Um, and I think that's the thing that draws us to that profession. I mean, no, you can go to any high school. I, I doubt you'll see a kid saying, I want to get out and be a corrections officer. And even probably more, I'll say, I want to be a cop, but we're just not that high on the totem pole anymore. So I would say because of our skill set, um, and the need to take care of our family. And you, you, you feel like you're doing something that's worthwhile and it's for the greater good. That's what brings us to a place like Leavenworth. That's what makes you, uh, that's what makes you show up for work every day. You feel like you're, you're protecting the community from people who have been sentenced for some violent crimes or other type of crimes, but you're keeping them within the confines of the institution as ordered by the court. And then the thing that makes you go home every day is uh, what I already alluded to is our families, man. I mean, the same way we want to take care of our families, we want to go back home to our families at the at the end. Okay. All right. 
What uh, what makes a good correctional officer? Wow, that is uh, multifaceted. That's uh, it's not complicated, but it's a complex question because there's a myriad of things. You know, you have to you have to look at what we already talked about the physical side. Yeah. Um, that you have to be in shape, um, but you also have to look at you also have to look at the uh, in addition to the physical requirements for the job and being ready for the job, the mental requirements uh, have to be there too. And I, I, I hate to use the term mental toughness, but you have to be, I would say, mentally strong. You have to be, you have to possess self-confidence. Um, you, and you can't be, to say that you have to be brave or unafraid, there's no such thing as, as being unafraid, but you have to have the ability to conquer your fear. You have to possess common sense, which is huge in the prison environment. You have to be, uh, again, the mental part, you have to be psychologically strong enough, um, number one, to avoid being manipulated, but also enough to see the things that go on day to day and to be able to go home and sleep at night. And you have to be a good communicator because, you know, we both know that behind that wall, different than when you were a uh, a police officer on the street and you got a, a firearm behind that wall, you have no firearm and we're outnumbered. You know, if it's 40 of us working on the shift, even if it was a hundred of us or 120 of us, like day watch working yeah. on the shift, there's still 2,300 inmates there. So you're outnumbered and you have no weapons. You have to be able to talk to people and talk to them properly to keep yourself from getting in a bad situation. Yeah. So it's a lot of things. Okay. So uh, people need to look up if they want to be a correctional officer. Would you recommend a, book that i don't even know who the author is uh called verbal judo uh you know yeah, what i'm talking I, about i remember i remember that book uh verbal judo yeah judo. i also remember another book the very first book they gave us was games uh i think it was games inmates Inmate play, play games yeah. convicts play they called it they were talking about people being manipulated um the more i you know i told you i want to do my master's and human behavior, communication, influence, persuasion, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I have a friend that's in Atlanta, and he wrote a book called Conscious Coaching, um, initially for the strength conditioning field, but you can use it regardless of your occupation. And in that, he lays out a lot of details about like the type of person you have to be. Like You have to be a self-aware person. You have to know who you are, what your values are, what you believe in. Um, you have to be self-reflective. That you have to be able to look at yourself, look at situations, what went wrong. You know, kind of like the after-actions report. Yeah. What went wrong? What went right? What can I correct next time? You also have the ability, uh, have the ability. He calls introspection. Well, you have to see, Rodney. You look back in your life and you go, okay. Self-reflection tells me I'm this way. Say I'm I'm wound tight or I'm angry. Why? am I that type of person? You have to be able to look all the way back where I'm that type of a person because, you know, when I was raised, my father was abusive to my mother and I was subjected to that as a child. Yeah. So I always, I always thought his hostilities were genetically passed to me, but really, and that could have something to do with it, I highly doubt it. I think I'd use that as a scapegoat is because he was a hothead and I think I'm a, a hothead, I should be a hothead, but I think probably more mad because of the way he treated my mother that anger is deep-seated and goes back decades so yeah. you have to know if you have that 
stuff in you say, okay, I'm wound tight, I'm hot-headed, whether, uh, I say short fuse, whether it's genetics or whereas uh, that nature versus nurture, so it's the environment I was raised in, I know I have that short fuse. So I have to either avoid situations that will trigger me to snap or at least be able to say, okay, I know I'm in this situation, it's going to get bad and talk myself down. So you have to have the ability to, to introspect and see what type of person you are. And then you work on the last thing is progressions where it tells you, okay, this is how I am. How can I keep myself from being that way? It might be meditating. It might be praying. It might be reading the Bible. It might be reading philosophy. It might be several things you do throughout the day. Just deep breathing might help me from getting so angry. And then, but see, everybody has to do that for themselves. So Brett wrote that book, Conscious Coaching, and it gives you all of that. Plus, it gives you various archetypes. So when you look at a person just by what they're doing, you can tell the type of person they are. That way, you know how to interact and communicate with them as well. Sorry, I know I was a lengthy answer, but no. that's a lot. No, I mean, it makes sense because I think a lot of people don't realize is that when they go into uh, law enforcement on the street and law enforcement uh, inside the prison system, it's uh, they're the same. And like you said, no, you, you definitely need to know how to talk to people inside the prison more than what you do on the outside the prison because a lot of stuff is more uh, reactive on the streets, you know, inside the prison is more proactive. You know, you got to be on those tiers. You got to be walking around talking to inmates. You got to be, you know, on the streets. A lot of cops nowadays, I look at them and, and they're driving down the street with the air conditioning on, computer in the car, don't even nod at you or say nothing to you, you know, even at a stop sign, you know. In the, in the prison system, you're not doing that. You're not just going in there and look and stopping at a desk and not ever talking to an inmate. You have to speak to the inmates, you know? So that falls... Right. That yeah, falls. I, think, I think the military was on to something because they made y'all... Like, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the military, you had to work the jails before you went on the street. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. Yep. You know? And, and well, actually, it depends. When I first went in, I was uh, an MP. So, of course, I was on the street first, but then I became a correction officer in the military, too. So uh, I think toward the end, they started making you go into corrections and then you could hit the street first, you know, after that. But I went in in 88 and then about 92, I think they start transferring over into that where you went into corrections first and then you were able to be a cop, you know, on the street. Um, but like I said, it, it comes down to. You know, that uh, being able to talk to someone and being able to speak to someone. Now, I have a question that is highly debatable, you know, and uh, but this is just my personal opinion is I personally don't think that there is a position in America or in the U.S. I mean, in the all over the world that is. Um, how do I put this? Uh, the most agitated job there is, is being a minority police officer, whether that's on the street or minority law enforcement, period. Now, I mean, what do you think about that? You know? No, and, and you said 
that that's your position, but you think it's debatable? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think a lot of people yeah, would I, debate that. You know. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think because you and I are, are pretty much cut from the same cloth. Off that I, I would agree with you there 100. percent And and most people don't understand that. Matter of fact, I got because I teach high school now. I got a hold of the uh, teachers union yesterday, and I said if the education system in Lincoln is doing anything in regards to race relations. Like I want to be a part of this because yeah. I have a different perspective. Um, just like you would of being in uh, law enforcement and now, uh, and being military and now being a teacher that it's not many people in the teaching profession that does that. I said, I would like to be at the table when they, um, figure out how to move forward with this because I, I know, Tensions are high right now. Emotions are high right now. And most people don't know how to deal with this and that we have to come up with some type of resolutions in order for us to move forward. Um, but that's the thing I told her. I said, it's, it's interesting when you're a black male and you've worked law enforcement, um, you you see the different the different eyes. And it's the yeah. same with being in the military. I'm looking up at my flag there. The, um, a soldier gave me is sitting up there on the shelf above my cabinet that when you're in the military and even being a black man in this in this country, and I never forget, not to digress, but just a side note, Chris Rock said, he was doing a comedy special, I want to say it's back in the 90s, Chris Rock said, for a black man in America, it's like being molested by your uncle, but he pays for your college. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So imagine imagine having that feeling, um, being a black man in America feeling like that, like, okay, we're getting crapped on, but this is an opportunity for us for us to feel like that. And then you take somebody like uh like Cap that's taking a knee and everybody goes all in an uproar over it. And um even the school I used to be at, the head football coach wanted me to talk to the students because he said that they're going to follow Cap and they're going to start taking the knee. And the principal don't want that. And he's like, uh, Stu, you're black. You're from the South. Uh, can you speak on it? I said, yeah, I can speak on it, but I ain't going to tell them not to kneel. I'm yeah. not going to tell them to kneel. I'm not going to tell them not to kneel. I'm yeah. going to tell them uh, that the decision is theirs and they have to understand the reason behind it. Just don't do it because your friends are doing it. But understand... Uh, the consequences and the repercussions that come from that. Yes. Because, you know, you talk about uh, uh, Tom Smith and uh, uh, John Carlos, uh, you know, on the Olympics, 68. They yeah. paid for that, man. They missed out on a whole lot of endorsements and, and, and things that other people got. So uh, it is a difficult, to back to what you're saying, it is difficult being black and being law enforcement when you know what the black experience is in america but yet you have to uphold the laws of whatever city state nation that uh, well city or state it's not it's not F, well, fbi marshals too but still yeah. you have to uphold the laws of the united states when you've been through the experiences that we've all been through as black people as black males so yeah it's without a doubt i agree with you on that 100 percent Okay. And yeah, and when I say when I say debatable because a lot of I've had debates with people when I say listen, you don't even understand and, and and even and you've been there, you've done that where it comes down to you're working side by side with someone and you go into a housing unit and it's a black and white issue. And basically your white coworker is expecting you just to take a certain side with it and then 
when you debate, say, listen, this is both sides problem. This is not just one one person's problem, just like you said with one of your uh, quotes that you said. It, it started somewhere, it started small and it started, you know, this is just not something that uh, just blew up and stuff. So getting on to that with um, one of the reasons why uh, I'm talking to you also is uh, you started a thing called convict quotes. And uh, can you explain a little bit about that to us? Man, you know, for whatever reason, the the public is fascinated about prison and prison stories and prison life. And I don't know what it is, but they love to hear about jail. So um, since Shelly and I have been married, like all of her friends, whenever we have a get together, you know, Stu tells a prison story, like what really goes on, blah, 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 blah. And, And I've done that a little bit over the years. But when I started teaching, I had no idea. School has changed since we were students, and yeah. it's not all for the good. So I was like, man, the the tolerance for disrespect is is mind-boggling to me. Um, you know, when I went to school, corporal punishment in Virginia, corporal punishment was still in play. And yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times a teacher cracked me across the here on the shoulder. Or they'll make you hold your hands out and pull your fingers in, hit you on the palms of your hand, or ball up your fist and take a ruler and hit you across your knuckle. And it, and that was just the way it is, you know, because I was talking, passing yeah. notes or whatever you do in school mm-hmm. that you shouldn't be and get cracked. But if you get cracked two or three times, then you go to the principal's office. And I remember distinctly, I went to the principal's office and he made me bend over and grab my ankles and he hit me with that paddle. And that paddle had holes in it. Yeah. And when he hit it, he holds it on your butt. It feels like it's sucking your butt cheeks through the holes. But the first time he hit me, <laughs> I went head over heels rolling because he hit me. So he swung that thing like a, a bat. I probably won't put 120 pounds, man. But yeah. you get three licks with that. And that was enough for me. I was like, well, I won't be acting the fool no more. Yes. But fast forward now, you go to school, there is no corporal punishment. But there's not, not only is there not corporal punishment, there's not even a demand for respect for 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 teachers or administrators, man. I've seen, like I say, administrators, principals, assistant principals, teachers get cussed out like dogs. And the numbers that have been assaulted, again, is mind-boggling. And then the student will go away for a couple of days or five days suspension and they're back at school. Man, if you had assaulted a, a teacher when i was here you would have been in jail and you would have never came back to that school ever yes you, and you definitely couldn't go from one school to the next so i had uh when i started i had a kid that walked up to me like my second day he's like man coach venable you're a big dude he's like what would you do right now like if somebody walked up to you and just slapped you as hard as they could i said uh they would they would go to the hospital i said i would i wouldn't i wouldn't kill them because they ain't worth dying for but they would they would never raise their hand to another black man as long as they live because for for you as a child to to strike an adult to me is is unimaginable um kids beating up parents is unimaginable so yeah you're not going to get your reputation on me i go ahead and do what i got to do to you and then i'll quit this job and wait for the charges to come and i'll, I'll fight it in court but what yeah. i won't do is get beat up by a 14, 15 year old kid. That's what I won't do. Yeah. Um, and I never had any problems after that. So there was uh, in that same class, there was another kid, and his father was locked up right here 
at the pen here, and he was asking me about it, and I was telling the story about the prison, and the other kids started gathering around. And then the next thing I know, like every other week, they said, Coach, Coach, tell us one of them prison stories. We finished our workout. The, the kids liked the prison stories. But, you know, like most things, it wasn't, wasn't long before the principal called me into the office. Yeah. Said uh, I had offended somebody, and uh, and he wanted to know what kind of stories I was telling. So I told him, and he said, well, I want you to know that, you know, I I, I, uh, I support my teachers, but uh, we can't be can't be telling those type of stories i said you're you're censoring my language what are you he goes no 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 i'm i'm telling you to make sure there's a lesson i said yeah that there's always a lesson a lesson is that there's no such thing as a free lunch and that there are people out there that will kill you literally for disrespect because the stuff that they get away with here in school they they won't get away with out there in the street this this coddle conditioning we doing here it won't work out there and that was our last talk about that, and I didn't tell any more prison stories there. But I knew the fascination was there. I just didn't know what to do with it. And then one day on the Humbug, when uh, I was talking to, I want to say one of my one of my children, my wife, I was like, let's just throw this out there and see how it goes. And so I did the first convict quote. I was uh, put down one or two words um, that the inmate had said. When, I, when you and I wrote that letter and then put a story to it and then try to tie it back to a life lesson for them. And I got more views than I ever got on anything I posted. I've been posting on social media for five years. I was like, hey, they might like this. So I did I did two more. I don't know what I'm doing with it or where it's going, but so far it's been very well received. Okay, yeah. Now we talked about this when we were in uh, Leavenworth about not so much convict stories but uh, or convict quotes, but it, it, it breaks it down to where... Um, I think I've mentioned something about I, I. We have to reach these kids at a younger age than what we are, because we're highlighting in in these videos and stuff that prison life is is something totally different than what it is. And so these kids are growing up that, you know, I do one or two years and it ain't no big deal. Well, and I was just talking to a parent the other day that said that uh you know um I don't know where. She said she was talking to me about her her son being in prison. And she said, well, where do you come up with the fact that they have it better in prison than they do on the street? And the reason why I said that, because in federal prison and she was talking about state. And I said, well, no, in federal prison. Yeah, there there is a big difference in federal prison compared to state prison. And she said, well, you know, her kid, you know, was very poor in prison and stuff. I said, well, yeah. I don't mean it that way in federal prison, and I don't mean nothing against inmates. But what we're doing is we're highlighting the prison system to these young kids, and we're not telling them exactly what happened in prison because we don't want to hurt their feelings, and we don't want them to think and be worried about mom and dad. Right. So uh, right. I say that to say this. We had talked about this like I said, years ago, that uh, there there has to be a way that we tell these kids. There has to be a way that we break it down to these kids. And and we I know we run a fine line, and, and, and us as XCOs could say certain stuff, but it, it has to come from the family. You know, it has to come from the family where, where they telling, you know, about mom and dad being in prison. And it's a fine line to where they don't have to worry about it, but at the same time, they need to be scared about it. You know, so, yeah, yeah, so, no, I, uh, 
I agree with you. They're kind of like, remember the story you told me about the little boy and uh, when you were walking by with the bag of uh, uh, yeah, yes. equipment, you had the soccer balls in there? Yes. Yep. Now, with that, uh, here's the story. I was almost at station. Well, I guess you are stationed because the Bureau moves you around if you want to move around just like the military does. Uh, basically, I was uh, working at uh, FCI Seagerville, Texas, and I was recreation officer there. And uh, there, the actual families come on to the whole field and stuff of the uh, institution. A lot of institutions, when they come in to visit, they just stay up front. When here, Seagoville, FCI Seagoville, actually had a playground on it to where the kids could come and play with their dad at the prison. So at this playground. So I was taking some uh, soccer balls from one from the prison to the jail system there. There they have a jail also where inmates, until they get found guilty, they're over at the jail system, you know, for the federal. So as I was coming out, I had a uh, bag full of soccer balls. Little Hispanic kid uh, was out in the foyer with me, his mom, and his little and his older brother. Well, he hit his older brother on the leg, and he said, uh, he's going to ask me a question. And so he said, uh, sir, he said, uh, I said, yes. And he says, uh, do they get to play soccer in here? And I said, yeah, they get to play soccer in here. And he hit his brother on the leg and this this little kid was probably about eight his brother was probably about 11 and he says see see i told you i told you they get to play soccer man i wish i could play soccer so right there to me it dawned on me what i just did to this kid i just subconsciously told this kid in order for him to play soccer he needs to come to prison and there's going to be a lot of people that debate on, well, no, you didn't really tell him that. Well, yeah, I did, because the situation that those kids are in in Dallas and a lot around the country, too, is the fact that their parent, whether it be a male or female, take them into a prison environment where they see their dad or mom. They look good. And I'm talking about federal prisons. They look good. They smell good. They get to eat snacks with them. They get to sit on a lap. They get to color with them. And all of that is gravy to a kid. I mean, they love it. But here's the thing. The side note is that when they go home, there might be no lights at the house. There might not be no, there is no extra food because the mom saves money and saves change to come so they can eat with their mom or dad at the prison. And Sometimes they drop out of school. Well, if they drop out of school, dad's getting a GED in prison. Dad gets to play sports in prison. And dad gets three meals a day. And dad gets hot and cold water. So if this kid is at home and dad never says nothing wrong or mom never says nothing wrong about prison, why is this kid not subconsciously thinking that that's where I want to be? And if I can only go in there and do four or five years, then why not? You know, I could get all of this stuff that mom and right. dad get, you know, right. so, 
So I say that just to say, and, and that's what brought me up with this whole, and that's what started the conversation over the years. And when I went back to Leavenworth, me and Coach V used to talk about this type of stuff that how do we reach these kids before they reach the prison system? And that's a debate that hopefully people listening out there will, will ask their families, will ask, will try to come up with something. Me and Coach V have an idea how we could do this, but you know, it would it would take all of us as society because as society, we are doing this to these kids. Not one certain person, not Rodney Harmon didn't tell that kid personally he could be in prison. But the all the totality of the whole picture meaning that he could be in prison and actually make something compared to being at home and being poor. Right. Right. And I think we're going to have to reach out, like you said, at a younger age, because by the time I get them at the high school level, for some of them, it's too late. You can see the writing on the wall and how you're going to go from high school to prison pipeline. You know, I've done this before. A few years ago, we had the collegiate signing day, and there were whatever, five, six kids signing, and they're all going to, off to college to play sports, and, you know, we're all in that clapping. We're happy for them. We're taking pictures, and we work. The school ended the third week of May. Before the month of June was up, there are twice as many kids that from that same school that had been incarcerated for one crime or another. So we got twice the kids going to jail as we do going to college to play a sport. But all I'm focused on, because I'm the PE teacher, I'm the strength coach, is let's get them strong, let's get them more powerful, make sure they got good running mechanics, let's get them ready for college. Well, you're sending five to college, but you're sending 12 to jail. Yes. Like, why not focus on those first? Why not focus on those before? Because, you know, you and I both know it costs a lot more to keep a young man or a young woman incarcerated than it does to send them through college. A year in jail. Is a lot more expensive than a year in college. Yes. So yeah. society should look at society doesn't care about anything else about them. They should look at it from an economic standpoint and go, wow, it would make sense to send them to college and pay for their college and let them come out and get a career and be a productive member of society than be in the penitentiary and learn to better that crime or hone their criminal skills. And never get out just be a a cyclical thing yes exactly and uh i don't know if you ever we we made topeka kansas made national news probably this time last year a little bit over anyway uh and it was based on probably wasn't even probably september october it was based on uh we were giving out matching Basically, we were giving you $15,000 to move to Topeka in a certain career field, uh, and then it was going to be matched by the employer that was going to give so much money. I think Topeka was indebted for seven, seven and a half of the money, and then the other seven and a half was coming from the you know corporate employer and stuff in Topeka to try to get more people to come to Topeka. And they were going to go up to $300,000 with that. My thing has always been, but at the same time, we were talking about the kids coming. Kids, why why is everybody getting an education and moving away from Topeka? You know, why, how can we, how can we keep kids in Topeka, you know, get an education and stay in Topeka and want to live where they grew up at? 
Well, my opinion has always been, why are we giving people money to come into Topeka instead of just, like you said, educating the kids to go to college, then to stay into Topeka? And we can almost do it the way they do, you know, like nurses and, you know, LPNs and RNs. Hospitals pay them to get their education. Then they then they ask them to sign a contract to stay anywhere from two to five years in that area. Well, more than likely, after that, they're going to stay in the area, you know? Right, right. Because once people start school, or once most most people, once, once their kids start schooling, it's hard for people to move unless they're in the military or work for the government. You know, they're not right. willing to give up that move, you know, with their family. So, right. I don't know. Like you said, as society, we need to look at the fact that it's a lot cheaper to send these kids to either technical school or college than it is to put them in a prison system where we know uh, the recidivism rate is going to continue. It's going to stay high, you know? Right. Yeah, I agree. So at the same time, as you know, right now, there's very few prison. I mean, there, yeah, there's very few major jobs in prison where, these kids, where the people can earn money. And even if there are, there's very few training in, in federal prison. I'm talking about federal now, where right. these where these kids could actually earn an education in, in a trade. So they get back out. We put them in prison for two or three years. They don't go to school. They don't get no technical training. Then they get back out. And then when they get back out, there's no assistance there to help them, you know, to get started. So we put them in halfway house for six to eight months, sometimes a year, depending on if they can find their, you know, way find a house where they could go live. And then we wonder why this recidivism rate is so high because we really hasn't, we really haven't trained them to do nothing else, you know? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you get, uh, I'm talking a lot, but I mean, you get, you could expand on this anytime you want as, as far as what you think about it. And No, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Like I said, we're, we're pretty much cut from the same cloth. So, we know what it is that that can be done that would make things better. We just don't have the power to do it. And I don't understand what it is that that's holding the powers to be up from doing, you know, some of the things like we're talking about now. Uh, mainly probably because they don't ask us. It, it was funny. I was, uh, I first started teaching and it was like my first month or so. And I walk into the media center. And I, I'm talking to the librarian. I said, who are those people in the corner? And she said, oh, Minority Affairs Committee, they meeting to see, you know, what things we could do to make it better, you know, for minorities here. I said, but everybody's white. She goes, mm. And then, yeah. you know, we get each other <laughs> looking, and I just walked out. I'm like, wow. Like, you couldn't find one person of color two, three something to, to sit in on this committee to see what we could do to make the minority situation better. It's un- unbelievable, man. Yes. Like I said, I'm running around now calling people up going, hey, uh, if you have a committee, I'd like to be on it. Hey, if you're putting together something, I want to be a part of I'm asking people to let me be on the boards, on their committees, mm-hmm. um, so we can try to uh, resolve some of these issues. 
Yeah, exactly. And a lot of stuff with, uh, I don't know, I, I, I got mixed feelings about this whole situation when it comes to everybody standing up now. Everybody, all these corporations putting out these letters saying we stand behind you and we do this and we do that. Okay, is it, are we being uh, made a symbol of or are we are we really in there, you know? Yeah. I want to I want to see what that stand behind looks like. Yeah. You, know, you can you know, again another prison quote. You can make your mouth say anything. Yes. So exactly. you know, uh, um, when Kaepernick when Kaepernick first said that you know and people were in disbelief and he was alienated and you know out there by himself. Now everybody's on board. Now everybody's you know we stand with you. What exactly does that mean? Like you said, what does that look like? Oh, is that just lip service? Because again, you can make your mouth say anything. You, yeah. When you say that that we stand with you, then what is your plan? And you and I talked about this. They gotta they gotta come up with a, with a plan, and they gotta put up uh, action steps to carry out that plan. And that that's what we want to see. Because you know, if you think you can just say we stand with you, or, or post a blackout screen on Tuesday, and we all gonna hold hands and say kumbaya, then you're uh, you're, you're misdirected. It ain't going down like that, baby. Yeah, exactly. This, this is different. Mm-hmm. This is different. Yep. Remember that. Uh, I, I mean, I tell you what. I'm even more concerned about the people that still are yet to acknowledge that there's a uh, there's something that they need to stand behind or that we need to talk about. The people got to get that point. Hey, man. First, you got to understand what the problem is, and you got to say, uh, yeah, there is a problem. And if you don't believe there's a problem, then you're probably part of that problem. But people got to, again, as I said at the beginning, you got to be self-aware and you got to be self-reflective and you got to be honest with yourself. And you know that the racism is systemic, man. You know, if you go to where you work, if you go to a doctor, a lawyer, attorney, a retail store, whatever, whatever facility you walk into... And if 90% of the people in there are white, then uh, you got to think something's not right here. We got some issues. We got something we need to address. At least we can have, you got to say we're missing a perspective. You know, if you got 100 employees and 90 of them are white and you got three or four minorities, you got to say, man, there's a lot of different perspective we're missing that can help our business. Exactly. But people, people don't want to do that. A lady said yesterday, um, they posted on Facebook, I'm going to leave this long, posted a picture of, of Christ on the cross. And she said, uh, he died because all lives matter. And uh, <laughs> I, know I, that. I, I posted back and I said, <laughs> yeah, all lives matter. But you got to understand when we say black lives matter, we mean black lives matter too. We're not saying white lives don't matter. We saying black lives matter too. She was, yeah, but all lives matter. And I said, they're not killing unarmed white men in the street. If you got a video of that in the last month or two, please post it. I will wait. Yes. And then I get, you know, I get nothing. Yes. Nothing. Yeah. And she said, uh, she came back with, well, all races had had to endure hardships. I said, well, when your ancestors came over on a ship, and my ancestors were chained in the bottom of it, our hardships are a little different. Again, radio silence, so I'm gonna have to check the day to see if if they blocked me, unfriended me on the Facebook page. Yeah. But people, if you can't even 
if you can't come to the to the realization that we have a problem and that racism is systemic and you try to throw out a distraction like all lives matter or or you know all all races go through hardships when you see a black man being choked out for nine minutes and his life leaving him on national tv if that doesn't hit you we can't even start to correct the problem because we not even admit we have a problem yes i think a lot of uh, from the ones i you know a couple guys i talked to or not to really even talk to the ones that i see post a lot on facebook i think what a lot of those guys are going through meaning white men they mm-hmm. they i think they're feeling like everybody's jumping on them right now but what they don't realize is you didn't have what three maybe two and a half well i say when since trump got in but really lately within last month and a half of people saying certain stuff about, you know, white men this and white men that. You got to understand, every black man that you see has lived his whole life like that. You know? Right. He has walked right. in. You know, how many how many white guys can you take, you know, and, and put them in a room and say, well, they were the only black in a room. Or, I mean, as far as they yeah. were only white in a room. You know, especially right. with us right. in the military. How many of us have you taken out of the military and you go, Man, there might be a thousand soldiers here, but in law enforcement, especially law enforcement, there's only like five blacks. Right. You know? Yep. And so very few of them could talk about situations like that. So anyway, I'm I'm gonna say this last part and then I'm gonna ask you some more questions and you know. Uh remember there was a term I came up with and, and you was like, Harmon, what is that? What does that mean? I wonder does it relate to you any more now today when I say this? And it was years ago that I, I mentioned it to you. And, you know, if people don't know, people know I, I'm, I got a smart ass mouth. Okay. <laughs> and meaning that I got a smart mouth when I got one liners that I come up with and I just write them down and I come up with all kind of different, you know, type of different scenes. But I just write certain stuff down and, and I just be smart about it. But I remember one time and I told Venable and we were talking on the phone. And I told you, I said, even a tree has bark. And you were like, what? I said, even a tree has bark. Now think about the situation that we have today. All this stuff, that, and same as I was just talking about, all the corporate stuff that's being involved and all these letters coming out and all these, you know, we stand behind you and stuff. Now take that same saying and, and translate it into the corporate, you know, even a tree has bark. So we could sit here and we could say, you know, they could sit here and they could say whatever. We stand behind you and we do whatever. But we need you to show some action. You know, we need you to go back and check those emails from those employees that's been through the years that's been quoting different stuff about black people and minority people and saying different, you know, sending out these little memes across them. Check those old emails and stuff and really see if you stand behind this and go back and fire all those people or the people that went to, and and I say this, I'm on a high horse now, but the people that went to HR, you know, and, and their EEO people and then to complain about nooses and to complain about different stuff. And, and they come to you and they say, Oh, you just sensitive or, Oh, you just, you know, uh, we think you might be the racist, you know? So. Yeah. 
if you could highlight on any of that that you experienced and 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 I say that with this question that comes up what adversity have you faced in life that made you the person that you are today um two i would say two things um i would say that that the most difficult adversity that, that I faced was um, my daughter being diagnosed with cancer when she was 10 and a half months old. That was my first one. And the second one is, um, and it is in reverse order, is when I got indicted uh, back in 2000. So both of those situations definitely, uh, I would say, caused a paradigm shift in, in my life, um, probably for different reasons, but they both cause caused a, a paradigm shift. And both adversities that, you know, that the talent takes trauma. My friend Brett Bartholomew that I told you did conscious coaching, he, he always says that talent takes trauma. So it's got, you have to go through bad stuff in order to really reveal who you are and see what you're made of, or you just fold in and, and, and cave. And those two things um, reveal what I was made of. I didn't know if I was going to make it out the other side of either one of those, actually. Okay. All right. So what do you want to know about, what do you want to know about either one of those? Yeah. I, I, I stay on with your daughter because a lot of people would go through okay. that more than they would go through the other one. And, and it takes a lot, a lot of trauma that happens with our kids if you're husband and wife and you're together at the time, a lot of stuff that happens to our kids, it puts you through, like you said, a different way of look at stuff. So some people come out on other end, which means that it's so hard on them to put the energy in helping their kid that the relationship folds in the end. So take right. us through, take us through the day you found out about your daughter, how you felt in the process of her in recovery and everything. Yeah, the uh, the day we found out, it was a uh, it was it, it kind of happened on the humbug because she she passed a, a clot of blood in a diaper, and she had been cranky for the few days before, and we thought she was cranky just because she was teething because she told me that's the time teeth. So we were wiping orange gel on the gums. And she's got a tumor, unbeknownst to us. So she passed a, a blood clot, and we took her to the doctor. And the doctor goes, ah, she's just a little girl. It's probably just a yeast infection. Give her some antibiotics. Brought her home. About two days later, she did it again. And um, the doctor goes, something's wrong. I gave you enough antibiotics for a horse. Take her to the doctor. And when she said take her to the hospital, um, she said you can either go to KU or Children's Mercy. And you know, in Kansas City, most people, if you got a ten month old child, you go to Children's Mercy. Yeah. But for whatever reason, because we used to take inmates, remember down to KU. I said we going to KU Med because I know my way around, and I feel like I knew some of the medical staff. I had relationships with people, so we did that. And uh, they they kept her overnight. They ran some tests. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. Ran some more tests. And different than the, than the soap opera, they walk in the room and goes, she's got cancer, she needs surgery. Just like that. Mm. And by that time, my oldest daughter was there. Uh, my wife's uh, my wife's sisters were there. And they said, we can't get to her for a week. And my wife snapped. 
And she never does this, but she flipped out. And she said, you're going to do the surgery now. They walked out. They had a meeting. They came back. They said, get her ready for surgery tomorrow morning. And they did. Operated on her the next day. Took a few hours. Removed her left kidney. Um, said it, the tumor had completely encapsulated the kidney. So uh, they think they got it all. So she won't have to do any radiation. And it was up to us if she did chemo. I asked the doctor what would he do if it was his child. Again, fortunate he had came from St. Jude's. He had did this type of surgery before. He said, I would do the chemo. Because if I miss one grain the size of a salt grain, uh, it'll happen all over again. So we did chemo for 16 weeks. Uh, they put a pick line in that came out of that went up through her chest and came out of her nose. Put the pick line in through her neck, came out of her chest, and then we had to clean it every day, inject it, clean it with saline, and take her down to KU uh, once a week for the chemo. And we were fortunate because she didn't lose any hair. She didn't have any side effects. We were buying headbands and stuff, hats, because we thought all the hair would fall out. Didn't lose a strain. Okay. Uh, we were lucky about the doctor working at St. Jude's before. And I think the other thing we're lucky about is my wife snapped because the, the tumor doubled in size in 24 hours. If they had to wait long, it would have killed her. Mm, okay. Now, how is she today? No side effects or whatever? No, you can't even tell. If, like, if we don't tell people the story, they have, have no idea. And you see her on my Instagram page is doing everything. I mean, she's lifting. She's a three-sport athlete. She's doing everything. Okay, all right. She only does it with one kidney, though. And yeah. we, we're aware of that. She's aware of that, so. But she can do everything. She's healthy. She can be. All right. Now, uh, as far as like, how difficult was it with you and your wife and and taking the baby back every week, or you know, uh, I know a lot happens with conflict of jobs and conflict of, you know, both you want to go, but then both you can't go, and then I know with you working with the government, you really didn't have that, you know, uh, too much of a problem as far as like money. You know, but what was there still a strain on you somewhat? Yeah, it was it was a strain on time because you know I had leave. You you, you can use your leave, and then when there's when there is no leave, then it's, it's done. Um, so I could use my leave when I needed to go. And you're right, we work for the government, so the money wasn't an issue. I would say the time the time to go was the biggest issue. And I think I burned through all of my leaves, so it probably wasn't but a couple of times I couldn't go. Um, my wife's job was more forgiving. They gave her more time off, um, and they kept collecting money. Giving it to her. I think they just didn't know what else to do. She works for an insurance company. It's just a lot of a lot of mommies there. Yes. So they just kept giving us money, giving us money, giving us food. And I don't even know if they deducted her leave. They just said, when you need to go, go. Her oh. job was a lot uh, more understanding than the federal government, yes. amazingly. But... Uh, the, the, the big thing for us, I would say, Faith didn't have any side effects from the chemo. It didn't mess with her at all. She was she never threw up. She didn't have much of an appetite, but to this day, she still doesn't have much of an appetite. But she, she's 5'8", at 13 years of age. Okay. Um, and both of our families, my wife and I, we were both long, lean people. 
So we expect her to get up at least six foot. We expect her to be six foot. Um, so it didn't affect her as far as, like I told you, hair loss. She wasn't sick. She wasn't lethargic. Slight. Uh, uh, not having an appetite. The hardest thing is to go through that cancer center and see all those kids that were losing their hair or had a different type. The Wilms tumor is a, is a kind of cancer that only affects kids and okay. it attacks the kidneys. And then once you recover from it, like it doesn't come back. It's not like you're in remission and it comes back. Like the other cancers, if he got it all out and then and then we did the we did the chemo and then make sure everything was gone, we really weren't concerned about it coming back but when you see kids with brain cancer and that kind of stuff that'll mess you up yeah yeah okay. that, that was the hardest part of her going through going through the the treatment and the the recovery part yeah okay now do you did you question yourself about what did i do what did my wife do why we why did we why is our daughter going through this you know i know a lot of parents question whether or not it was their fault you know did you ever, did that ever happen with you and your wife? Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, uh, talking to Willie Mack. Remember Willie? Yeah. Talking to Willie because uh, you know, both Willie and I waited until we were 40 to have our last child. And yeah. uh, and with with us, unfortunately, Faith was, I was 42 when Shelly got pregnant. So, you know, when your kids, you talk about, when I was a kid, probably when you were a kid too, that people talk about old old people baby, old yeah. men baby. Like uh-huh. you wait till you're too old to have a baby, the baby come out and it has some health issues or some mental issues. Yeah. You go, What's wrong with what's wrong what, you know, what's wrong with the Ray Ray over there? Oh, he a old people baby. Yeah. So yeah. when that happened, I was like, Man, did I wait till I got, you know, too old and then this is the result? Is it genetic because this cause it's a rare cancer. Yeah. You know, is because I, I was older. Shelly was older. Uh, I think I was 42, and Shelly is seven, eight years younger than me. But I was older. So I'm like, man, is it my fault? And then I started thinking about, you know, all the crap I did in my young life and my pain that day. You know, does God punish me for that? Whatever, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I went through that. I don't think Shelly did. Shelly thought she was going to be a nun when she was a kid. Oh, okay. She thought God wanted her to be a nun. So our lifestyles were very different. Right. I thought when I was a kid, I thought I was going to die young. Yeah. When I was a little boy, in grade school, I always thought I was going to die young. So I lived like I was going to die young. Man, I'm, I'm going to be out there. Yeah. And that's why I thought God was punishing me for living like that. I had to pay my dues. Okay. Well, Shelly, Shelly uh, she thought right because that was a divine intervention, you know? Yeah, no question, huh? You know, <laughs> no divine intervention for all that that came through. Oh, okay. Yeah. Looking back uh, in life, what's one thing you wish you understood about being a coach before you actually chose that field? I wish I had understood that it's more to it than the sets and the reps. Okay, I, I didn't get I didn't get that. You know, I started this in Alaska in '82. Uh, My platoon sergeant said, uh, "Can I?" go to the gym with you and I said uh no I'm busy man like I thought I was gonna be on a magazine or something I'm gonna be on yeah. with Arnold Franco Colombo yeah and he was like come on man I was like nah you know Sarge I, I can't take you with me you know I'm training serious this dude is new yeah so he said I'll pay you 
said, I'll pay you. And when he said, I'll pay you, I stopped in my track. I said, you pay me? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, let's go. Yeah. So we go, right? And I can't remember what it was. You know, back in 82, it's probably $5 or $10, whatever it was. But he gave me money. We go over there. So, you know, being a meathead, bodybuilder, I do what everybody's doing in every gym in the United States on Monday. We're going to bench press. Yeah. So I put a plate on each side. So for the listening audience that don't lift, a plate on each side of a 45-pound bar, that's 135 pounds because they're 45-pound plates. I yeah. load the bar because that's where I start my warm-up. Bearing in mind, this guy's new. He's never lifted before. I take the weight off. He brings it down to his chest and, and yells in pain and says that uh, it hurt his shoulder. So I help him rack the bar. And then he got up and he left in the, in the formation the next day. He's telling everybody that I hurt him. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing that I hurt him. I'm telling everybody he's weak. I said, he's from South Carolina. He's a big old weak dude. He's all. Yeah. But for real, I was embarrassed because yeah. I had injured him. Cause, and then he put me on blast in front of everybody saying I didn't know what I was doing. That was the thing that made me start going to college. I, I took my first college class at the Education Center on Fort Wayne Wright, Fairbanks, Alaska, 1982. I said, I got to learn about the human body. I got to take anatomy. I got to take physiology. I got to take, um, I want to exercise fits, but they said physiology was a requirement for exercise fit. So I was taking all those classes while I was in Alaska. And all I was focused on is the sets and the reps and how the body responds to exercise. And I wish, I wish I understood that it's all about relationships and communications. And and I didn't get that then. I just go, I can make money showing them how to work out. And that's not what it's about. You no, it's not I'm not saying don't make money. Please make yeah. money. That's yeah. how you take care of your family and make a lot of money and mm-hmm. take care of your family even better money was a big part but i was money motivated yeah and i shouldn't have been money motivated i should have been connection relationship motivated you do that right baby the money coming oh yeah yeah uh i also got a personal trainer license and 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 uh and my son he has his so when he was becoming a personal trainer you know, he used to ask about, you know, how do you train people? How do you do this? And I said, listen, a personal trainer is really just a hairdresser. True. Because some most most people just want you to listen to them. They, they, they want the training. They want the physical training. But they also want you to just listen to them. They want a partner right. to listen and show them the correct way to do the movement. Most people aren't trying to get out there, like you said, be a bodybuilder or, or do anything. And, and. Like you said, you can't come up and work out with a person that's been working out for three or four years and then come in there and try to do his exercises. You just can't. Right. You know? You can't. You can't. Yep. So uh, I say that to say this. When when it comes to personal training and it comes to training people, if you know the proper exercises, then you could train people if you're willing to listen and talk to them and talk them through it. But don't, yeah. yeah, don't let them get in there and try to tell you how they want to be. And then you just don't pay attention and you just want to do whatever. Me personally, my personal philosophy is if I'm training you five years later and I'm still personal training you, then I didn't do my job. I should not right, be training right. you for five years. You, you know what right. I'm saying? Right. You just want to pick up enough from you to be able to take 
take care of myself now. Exactly. You you just want a a hairdresser. That's what you want. You just right. want somebody to talk to. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What is the uh, single most important reason for your success? You think? It's the ability to have self-awareness. Because I, I do a lot of, I still do, I guess, I, okay, I have done a, I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And I still do stupid stuff. But I have the ability to look at myself and see what I've done that's stupid and, and try to correct that and hopefully not repeat that. I just do different stupid stuff. But yeah, yeah. I, do a, I do a lot less goofy stuff now at this age than I did 20 years ago, definitely than I did 30 years ago. But, you know, the people that keep getting themselves in the jams, they don't have that, that self-awareness. They don't have the ability to look at their self and see that they screwed up. They're always pointing things at other people. It's always somebody else. It's always, he did that, she did that, they made me. Ah, you did that yourself. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's my, my single biggest thing. Okay. All right. And the closeout question. If you could put a billboard up in any city, where would you put it and what would it say? If I could put it up in any city, selfishly, it would be in Lincoln because this is the city I live in. Um, I could put it in two words, brothers, relationship matters. Okay. We, we, we're, as human beings, we, we are social animals. You know, this is how we have survived this long and that it's important that we be able to, to connect with other people, to build relationships with other people, to understand other people and have them to understand us. And you can't do that if you shut yourself off from everybody, if you think you're better than somebody, if you act like a, a, a knucklehead, you can't do that. So, um, yeah, two big words, relationships matter. Okay. All right. What, um, I, I know I said that was a closeout question, but how would you think that your wife would describe you? Um, she would tell you that I'm, I'm intense and that I, I'm driven. Um, I can't sit still. My mind is always going. So yeah, she would say that I'm, I'm intense and that I'm driven. Those would probably be our first two words. I always feel like I got to provide for my family. And then even when I provide, I always feel like I got to provide more. I got, then I got to provide and, you know, have a legacy and I got to leave, you know, an inheritance to my kid. Now I got a grandson, so I got to leave an inheritance to my grandson. So that keeps me motivated to keep driving. And I got to be the coach for kids to have that I didn't have when I was a kid. I got to be a lifelong learner. I got to be better. You know, like you were talking about earlier, when you're the only black dude in the room, you feel like you're carrying the weight of everybody black. Like, man, I'm going to represent all black people. Like, I'm on the Howard Stern show. Like, I'm big black and king of all black. Yeah. Like, any type of question, I, I got to feel that. So whatever I do or whatever I don't do, I represent all black people. And being in law enforcement, being in the military, and even now, 
being being a teacher. You can teach in Lincoln, Nebraska, man. Uh, our minority teacher population is less than five percent. Honestly, last time I I actually talked to somebody that knew, they told me it was three percent. So the minority population, the kids are thirty three percent. The population of the minority teachers, all minority teachers, is at three percent. Okay. So there's not enough people that look like 33 percent of our kids to connect with those kids. So I try my best to reach out to as many of those as I possibly can, but I wish there were more that look like me. Okay. All right. What, uh, how would you describe your wife? Oh, man. She is, uh, she is a rock. She is the one that's solid. You know, I think I posted on Instagram one time that people are like, oh, Coach V, you lift a lot of weight, you're strong. She is the strong one. I'm not the strong one. And I married, I married a, a beautiful woman, and she's more beautiful inside than she is out. And she is just as beautiful to me now at 50 as she was at 28. But her that's not her primary characteristic is her strength. She's the glue that holds our family together. And man, is she ever a people person. When it comes to relationship, she's the one. We know everybody on our block because of her. We hang out with all our neighbors because of her. Because, you know, I look like this. Ain't nobody uh, really trying to hang out with me. Yeah. <laughs> she's so outgoing and personable that she gets relationship matters and communication matters. And she gets it much better than me. Okay. All right. Well, is there anything that you want to say to our guests or to uh, our listeners that I haven't asked you? No, what I would say, yeah, I said no, and then I said what I would say. Yeah. No, what, <laughs> what I would say to, to, to your listeners that support your podcast, um, and that to bear in mind that these times we're in now, that the tension is high. And emotions are high, like I said at the beginning. So try to be tolerant of other people and educate other people. Because the only way we're going to get anything done is by educating people that don't know. Everybody's not the bad guy. And the good guys, sometimes they don't know that they were given things in life that they didn't earn. And we got to educate them on that. But we, we will get nowhere if we don't communicate with them and if we don't educate them. And that's the way to move this, uh, to move these issues we're going through right now, these racial tension issues. The only way to move it forward, man. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Venable and Coach V. Brother, and, uh, I appreciate you having me, man. All right. What? Okay. Before we leave, where can our listeners connect with you on Facebook? You mainly go on Instagram, right? I'm mainly on Instagram. Okay, we're... Coach, yes, at Coach Venable One. So Coach V E N A B L E in the number one, and I'm on Twitter on Coach underscore Venable. I get on Facebook just to see what other people post. My heart to put anything on Facebook, but Instagram is my primary platform for communicating. Most of my kids hang out there, so that's why I have it, so I can reach them. You can feel free to email me. Uh, anytime s venable at lps.org um i'm willing to help anybody any way i can i'm an old man it's my time to give back man all right 
All right, well, that's all for today's episode of Black Mentors, a production of Voiceland Media, LLC. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Stuart Venable, for joining me today. Make sure you join us here every Wednesday as we ask, listen, learn, and invest in the knowledge and truths of black men from all socioeconomic backgrounds. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Please subscribe to the podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode every Wednesday.